0: Matthew 5, verse 7. Matthew 5, verse 7. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Let's pray that prayer we pray. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our strength and our redeemer. How many of you uh, played Little League baseball growing up at some point? A couple of hands, yeah. I played for a few years. I played right bench. (laughs) Sorry, right field. Right field is, you know, when you're not on the bench, right field is where they put all the subpar players. Um, Because most kids are right-handed, which means you tend to hit the ball to left field if you're going to hit it at all. So right field was the safest place to put somebody like me. And they would put me in for my obligatory two innings in every game, uh, usually late in the game and hopefully after we had already built enough of a lead that I couldn't screw things up. I couldn't catch. I was afraid of the ball, and most girls I knew threw harder than me. I wasn't fast. I couldn't hit. The only thing I was good for was drawing walks, because I could stand and take pitches with the best of them. Um, You just kind of close your eyes and flinch a little bit, and you would end up walking, at least in Little League. So... Now, in spite of all this, I was fortunate, uh, fortunate enough to be on two consecutive championship teams. Uh, I live a charmed life. I was the worst player on two of the best teams that the OMTL ever saw in, in Alney down in Philadelphia, and uh, I, that meant I was able to ride the wave to glory. And you know, little league baseball is funny. I don't remember if we actually used this rule, but I, I saw it in other places when, like, my nephews were playing this kind of thing. Most little leagues, I think, have this thing called the mercy rule right I always hated that idea because I may not be good at baseball but I am a purist you know but the mercy rule basically is like this if one team takes like a 10 point lead and holds it for a certain length of time the game just ends and they win by default and they say this is designed to prevent humiliating bad teams and making the kids feel bad i think the reality is that no parents want to sit through and watch that much endless bad baseball So I think the mercy is more directed at the parents than the kids. But today, we're looking at the original mercy rule. Jesus tells us that the blessed man, the happy man, is merciful. And as with all the blessings so far, there's an implicit command. It's not just a statement of fact. There's a command to be merciful. And the promise Jesus gives is that those who show mercy will receive mercy. Now, this is the only beatitude that seems to be a direct tit-for-tat, give-and-take, right? There's no logical reason why the meek should inherit the earth, right? Those two things seem almost unrelated, but you know, it's like finishing your supper and, you know, and winning the Stanley Cup for it or something. It's, like, it's really random, right? But, but this beatitude here is a very simple formula. Mercy is the command and the reward. Give and you'll get... And not only is the formula simple, the word is easier, right? Everyone understands what mercy means, at least in a general sense. You know, meekness was kind of confusing, right? That sermon required a little bit of a word study, right? And even the phrase poor in spirit, you know, we had to kind of parse that one a little bit. But this beatitude is easier to wrap our heads around. In fact, I could just say amen and we could all go home. Phil would approve. Um, but it's not as simple as all that, and, I want to feel like, you know, I'm getting paid for something, right? So we'll, we'll, we'll get into a little more than that. Because th- this is one of these blessings that's not so much an intellectual challenge. The challenge is much more in the execution. Mercy is a wonderful word. Um, it doesn't have the negative connotations of words like hunger or mourning or meekness did, right? We, we like the idea of mercy, And we admire merciful people. Nobody likes the kind of people who are relentless law keepers. Some people just like rules, and they like pointing out all the little ways that you're failing and that kind of thing. And we we, we like people who know how to overlook little stuff, right? Little faux pas. Uh, We all know people who are very good at putting you on guilt trips, right? Some of you are good at putting people on guilt trips. And what is a guilt trip but basically withholding mercy? It's holding mercy hostage, making forgiveness something that's doubtful. And when mercy is conditional, it's not very merciful. So we prefer people to be merciful just as we prefer anyone to be nice. And I think we all like to think of ourselves as nice, merciful people. I know I do. Every now and again the, the kids will ask me for something minuscule and I'll, I'll cut them some slack and it's usually a pretty small affair but then I'll, sometimes I'll turn to Georgia and I say that's why they call me Magnanimous Matt. And then I physically will pat myself on the back until she pinches me out of spite which is not very merciful on her part and that's why she doesn't have a cool nickname like mine. <laughs> so mercy is a good thing we can all agree in, in principle, and it's a very biblical idea. It appears hundreds of times in scriptures, and it's a very churchy word, which is slightly distinct from being scriptural, right? Although I think in the church it, it's kind of a catch-all for a lot of things. You know, if we say, what a mercy, it didn't snow this morning. And of course it did. I have this in my notes before I, like, think about these things. But, you know, you could have said that, right? It's just a subtle churchy way of wording things, right? And, and there's also this idea of mercy ministry, right? We, we have several deacon candidates right now undergoing what we'll call training with me. Uh, I'm not much of a formal instructor. It was much easier to just hand them readings. But um, one of the phrases that keeps coming up in any of these readings is the idea of mercy ministry. And that's the buzzword for all diaconal work. It's supposed to be the mercy ministry wing of the church. So again, mercy in that sense is something of a catch-all because changing light bulbs. Mopping up the rock salt, uh, cleaning up after coffee hour—all of that somehow falls under the definition of mercy ministry. And it is a mercy in a sense. It's it's a mercy because I don't have to do it. Um, Every time Joe comes in here and fixes some mess, that's a mercy. Every time Phil makes some of the junk disappear, that's a mercy. Every time the heat comes on, that's a mercy. Just so you know, your, your deacons do an awful lot of stuff to keep this place afloat. I just want you to know that. And and they are extending a form of mercy to all of you every time you come to worship and you can take all those details for granted. You are receiving mercy. I wouldn't deny that. and And of course... Deacons are also supposed to look after the material needs of our members as we're able. And in some churches that have big budgets, you know, deacons are able to do mercy ministry even outside the church walls. They can feed the homeless and that kind of thing. But if we only think of mercy in terms of building maintenance, uh, we've lost something. And likewise, if our mental picture of mercy only means overlooking minor, inconsequential things or honest mistakes, we also can end up with an impoverished view of mercy. Biblical mercy is much bigger than that it should certainly include mercy in the little things and it can even include building maintenance but if we really want to apply this idea we have to broaden it out a bit so I, I think there is some danger that mercy as a concept is, is, it can be so broad that it becomes almost meaningless, it's kind of like love in that respect right, love is also a, a wonderful thing and it's, it's a very biblical idea and it's a necessary trait in the Christian but we use that word for so many things I love my wife I love my kids. Uh, But, you know, I also love cheese and um, bad movies that are so bad that they're funny. Like, I love those, too. Um, I use love in a lot of different ways, including sarcastically, right? Uh, Even the Bible uses love in lots of different ways. Greek has, like, three or four words for love, And likewise, if everything from changing light bulbs to good weather is defined as a mercy, then the word mercy can lose its punch. It can become almost a trivial concept, and we can end up with a sort of small view. So while mercy is not a mystery word like meekness was, it might be so common that we tune it out or tend to use it cheaply. Um, Of course, we know there's a heavier sort of legal meaning to the idea of mercy, meaning escaping punishment. And maybe you think of a king having mercy, uh, right? A, a king deciding not to behead some peasant who I don't know stole a turnip or something, right? That's like that's big mercy, right? Uh, but it, but it also doesn't come up in daily life, right? That that kind of mercy comes up in fairy tale kingdoms, not so much in Allentown. Even if you did get in serious criminal trouble here in Lehigh County, it's okay. Pennsylvania hasn't executed anybody since 1999, so. You don't need to ask for that kind of mercy most of the time these days. Mercy isn't really a thing in American jurisprudence anyway. When people are in legal trouble these days, right, uh, and they stand before a judge, they don't ask for mercy, they ask for leniency. They basically ask the judge to bend the rules a little bit and turn a blind eye to the demands of the law. And defense attorneys ask judges to consider mitigating circumstances, right, Defendants don't ask for mercy; they're pleading for understanding. They try to explain themselves and why it wasn't really their fault and why it's not as bad as it sounds, and why their circumstances kind of drove them to it, and how, look at my previous good behavior should be considered, too. So I think oftentimes in our society, defendants don't ask for mercy because they don't think they need it. They think they deserve a chance to explain themselves to be understood. But if mercy is essentially the absence of punishment, I think many Americans would say they deserve mercy. We have a constitutional amendment that forbids cruel and unusual punishments. But we kind of broaden that out, right, because we don't really like any punishments. We, we live in a culture that increasingly condemns spanking and The death penalty has become increasingly unpopular, and there are constant demands for all kinds of reforms, criminal justice reform, bail reform, sentencing reform, prison reform. The general sense is that everyone deserves a second chance, and punishment's only going to make something worse. And I, I wonder if that contributes to a lower view of mercy. Americans increasingly think of mercy as an entitlement, not an exception to the rule. And, of course, as Christians, we have a higher judge than the local magistrate over on Hamilton, right? So in theory, we should have a a much higher view of mercy than our neighbors. It makes sense because someone can only have mercy if they have the power to punish you. And not only the power to punish, but the right to punish you. You know, we sing... Every Sunday, just as we did earlier, Lord, have mercy upon us after we confess our sins together. That makes a lot of sense in a Christian liturgy. It wouldn't make sense to many people outside the church. It can become just rote repetition because I think even in the church, many people struggle with the need for mercy. We don't mind. I think it's easier, in a sense, to confess our sins as a group, confessing our general sins as the royal we because it's vague enough and doesn't get into details. But many professing Christians think of God as a sort of cosmic vending machine who loves us. And why shouldn't he love us, right? Because we're awesome. That's kind of how we think about things. I read a, a it was a political piece this week, but it was by a Catholic writer. I don't usually read him, I, I don't find him that interesting. But he, he said one thing in the article that kind of struck me this paragraph. He said, I, I don't find it hard to offer forgiveness to someone who's actually penitent. I don't know about you, but to me, the more difficult part is admitting my own trespasses in the first place, accepting that I need forgiveness. Which of us wants to admit the broken, squalid, fallen parts of himself and face them with stark honesty? Not this soldier, I can tell you. And that's why in Catholic parishes, the communion lines are, oh, so much longer than the lines for the sacrament of confession. We've already forgiven ourselves and moved on with our lives. We assume that the Lord is mature enough to do the same. After all, we've already forgiven him for allowing all the suffering on earth, haven't we? That's sad, isn't it? Of course... It's also ridiculous. He's not describing, this is not real mercy, that's an entitlement complex. This is blasphemy. But he's right. A lot of people think of it that way. We expect mercy without repentance, and we don't even really want to ask for the mercy. So, again, you see this this beatitude is not hard to understand in principle. But I think there are two reasons why the beatitude is hard to apply. And one is that mercy is really hard to give, and the other is that mercy is also really hard to receive. Why is it hard to show mercy, to be merciful? Well, Obviously, I, I, unfortunately, I think the, the answer is kind of obvious on that. We're just not very forgiving people by nature a lot of the time. I think we like leniency for ourselves, but not for others. Uh, We want forgiveness for ourselves, but we want to retain the right to put everyone else on a guilt trip when we have to, right? And I think we also don't like dealing with conflict, and mercy requires dealing with conflict. You can't have mercy if you don't first acknowledge that somewhere, somebody did something wrong. Mercy implies that somebody sinned, and sin deserves punishment. Sin has consequences, right? We've talked about that. And mercy requires you to look at the mess, the consequences that sin created, and only then can you show mercy. Mercy assumes sin, and sin is messy. You know what's a lot easier than showing mercy? Pretending nothing happened. Acting like it didn't hurt when your friend did some terrible thing, when they gossiped about you or stole from you or disappointed you in some way. It's also easier to explain sin away, to make excuses for it. You know, oh, he was really tired. He was under a lot of stress. Showing mercy, real mercy, is hard because some things are just too hard to forgive and some sins are too hard to face and too hard to relive or even talk about. real biblical mercy like that is hard to do. <coughs> And not only that, mercy can leave you feeling vulnerable. Because it's true in sports, it's true in war, it's true in everyday life. If I show mercy, it could come back to bite me. If I let someone off the hook, they might hurt me again. You know, I, I talked about the Little League Baseball mercy rule, right? They don't, they don't have that in real big league sports. Uh, you can run up the score in the NFL, for instance. Some teams do. Now, that can sometimes seem unnecessary, but in baseball, showing mercy mercy can be costly. Uh, One of my favorite baseball stories happened back in June of 1989. I wasn't old enough to really actually remember it. It's just a funny story. Uh, It was another regrettable, forgettable season for the Phillies. They would lose 95 games that year. But on June 8th, the Pirates came to town, and they took a 10-run lead in the first inning. And Pirates announcer Jim Rooker exclaimed on the radio that if the Pirates don't win this game, I'm going to walk home to Pittsburgh. (laughs) And he had to eat those words because the awful Phillies squad clawed their way back and ended up winning that game 15 to 11. He ended up walking home, I think, over at the end of the season for charity or something like that. But the point is, is that showing mercy is the kind of thing that you might come to regret. Uh, because the person you have mercy on might hurt you later. It's sometimes better to rack up the score, right? So we tend to be cautious like that. I'll give you another example. When I was in third grade, I was in the only fistfight I was ever in in public school. I accepted this challenge, and we stood there, and we squared off for a little bit. I don't remember what the dispute was. And he left himself exposed and open. And I could have decked him. But I slapped him and decided that was enough. And he proceeded to kick me as hard as he could in my shin, and I crumpled to the ground and cried. So I didn't fight people anymore. But, you know, I thought to myself in retrospect, man, I should have hit him harder. He wasn't even guarding his face. So the lesson I walk away with, you know, is if somebody hits me, street smarts tells me to kick him while he's down. Giving mercy is going to come back to bite me, because that's what happened. So it is hard to give mercy, but it's also hard to receive mercy, in large part because we don't like facing the sin in ourselves. Many professing Christians, and I'll include myself, sometimes have a hard time believing that we can keep going back to God for forgiveness for the same things again and again and again. We can have a terrible habit of putting ourselves in God's place. We set ourselves up as our own judge and executioner. We put ourselves on trial and we punish ourselves. And then we tell ourselves that we're doing it to honor God. And I think our enemy knows this. There's a reason why Satan in Hebrew means accuser. He is a great prosecutor, and he loves watching us punish ourselves. Satan's whole M.O., his entire program is either cheap mercy or none. In one breath, he's going to tell you that sin, that sin you're thinking about doing, it's not that bad. You might as well. And then he's going to turn around and point to your sin and stick your nose in your sin, and he'll tell you that your mercy must be earned. And then he'll sit and laugh as you punish yourself trying to get right with God because nothing makes our enemy happier than watching us strive for holiness without ever receiving or accepting God's mercy. I was reflecting on what the antithesis of mercy would be because sometimes contrast can help bring clarity. And I thought to myself, I don't think the opposite of mercy is justice, because God is infinitely just and infinitely merciful, and there's no contradiction. He manages to be both. And I didn't think vengeance is quite the opposite of mercy either, because, well, vengeance is mine, says the Lord, right? So he obviously doesn't find mercy and vengeance to be opposed to each other. I thought to myself, I think that the opposite of mercy, the antithesis of mercy maybe is a better way of putting it, is cruelty. And God is not cruel, Cruelty is the calling card of the enemy. Now, admittedly, I think we often mistake correction for cruelty. Even if we are pro spanking when it comes to our kids, we think it cruel and unusual if it's applied to us. And sometimes we imagine that God does things to us just for spite. But He is not cruel, and even His rebukes are merciful. Scripture tells us that who the Lord loves, he rebukes. And letting you face the consequences of your sin, even, is a form of mercy. Because it's better to suffer a little bit now if it drives you to repentance and greater Christ-likeness. Our goal is to be like Jesus, not escape all rebuke and correction. So God sends tender mercies, and he also sends severe mercies. We prefer the tender ones, don't we? but even his severe mercies are not meant to crush us. I was reading a book review this week, because that's easier, easier than reading actual books, and um, the book was called A Severe Mercy. It was written by a man named Sheldon Van Auken, and apparently the story is that he, he and his wife were not believers, but they became friends with uh, C.S. Lewis, and they came to faith in Christ, but the wife came with a, a lot more enthusiasm than he did. And the husband got to a point where he almost resented her faith and felt like it was stealing her away. And in the midst of all this, she got sick and she died relatively quickly. And in the midst of this loss and suffering, Lewis wrote to his friend and basically told him, you know, look, I think you've made an idol out of love. I think you made an idol out of your wife, and that this has made it impossible for you to focus on Christ. And if she had lived and your faith had died, that would have been a whole lot worse. And the way Lewis put it is, he said, you have been treated with a severe mercy. And by God's grace, he did come to see it that way, enough so that he wrote a book about it, right? Nobody likes severe mercy, but severe mercy is still mercy. God corrects his children, but he does not destroy them. Now, I wanted to take just a bit of time to reflect on the biblical picture of mercy. Because the theme of mercy shows up all over the scriptures, and I I could preach on this for many, many weeks. I looked up mercy, I decided, just as a start here, let me look it up in the concordance. And one thing immediately stood out to me. Other than like one use, it shows up once in the in the book of Genesis. After that, the next like 25 or 30 uses of the word mercy are almost always in reference to the mercy seat. Now what's the mercy seat? It's described in some detail in Exodus. It's essentially an empty space on, on top of the Ark of the Covenant. There are two gold cherubs seated on the lid with their wings sort of pointed toward each other. And the space between them was called the mercy seat. Those of you who have seen Indiana Jones knows what it looks like, right? You know, it's every every serious Bible scholar starts with Indiana Jones for reliable information. the The idea in the Old Testament was that God sort of dwelled above this mercy seat. That was his throne. That was the symbol of his presence among his people. And what's interesting to me is that all these references, it's all God speaking to Moses and telling him how to, how to make this thing. What's interesting to me is that he never calls it a throne and he doesn't call it a judgment seat. He insists on calling it the mercy seat. That's God's name for it. And what I took from that as I reflected on it is that God's default position is mercy. When he holds court... When his people approach him, even in the Old Testament, before Jesus atoned for sin at the cross, it is assumed that mercy will win the day. When you approach the throne in repentance, you can expect mercy. And what makes the seat merciful is not the quality of the gold or how it's designed. The mercy is part of God's nature. God is the source of all mercy. It's a mercy seat because a merciful God dwells there. And I found that fascinating because I thought to myself, that becomes the theme then for the rest of scripture. A merciful God who is constantly rescuing his people. And of course, God is the only source of mercy because he's the only one who has the power and the right to punish. If weak men can't be meek, by the same token, you can't be merciful unless you have the power and the right to punish. And only God has that right, and only he has the power. Every sin is ultimately against him, and only he has the power to avenge every sin. And yet scripture tells us that he nicknames his throne mercy. Now, that doesn't mean God's not also a righteous judge. We know that. Jesus promised he was going to come back to judge the nations, but the point that I'm making is that for God's people, the throne of judgment is also the mercy seat. Judgment and mercy are sitting there together, but God's default setting toward his people is mercy. And when I thought of that, I thought, no wonder David can say when you come across it in the 23rd Psalm, he says that goodness and mercy will follow me all of my days. God is not bound to the ark So mercy doesn't just stay in its seat either, right? It pursues us. It chases us around because God pursues his people. Mercy chases Jesus' friends. We couldn't outrun his mercy even if we tried. And I think also that what Jesus is indicating in this beatitude is that mercy multiplies. Mercy begets more mercy. Mercy. In God's kingdom, if you show mercy, you receive mercy. It's not worldly logic, but it makes sense in kingdom logic. And it's also true the other way around. I think this is the only beatitude that's just as true in reverse. He could have said, Blessed are those who receive mercy because they'll be merciful. In fact, I would even argue that logically it almost has to be that way, right? Because how can you be merciful if you're not filled with mercy? And who can fill you with mercy but Christ? You can't truly give mercy until you've received it. You could almost read it this way. Maybe this is a better translation in a sense that happy are the mercy filled because they'll receive even more mercy. Mercy pours out of God's throne and it expands and it overflows to the point we can't even contain it. So why not share it is what Jesus is saying. We all need mercy, don't we? Mercy's not for people who did nothing wrong or have a really good excuse. It's for those of us who screwed up royally. And I've been there just as you all have. This will seem maybe minor to some, but this week I, I really dropped the ball. I was supposed to meet the Michener girls at their school for a pastor's breakfast. I totally forgot. Uh, I literally thought nothing of it until Joe texted me later in the afternoon, and I had no excuse. I'm sorry, girls. I tried to think of an explanation, but the fact is I was just so wrapped up in what I was thinking I thought were the important things, and I guess that just didn't make the cut in the back of my mind. Now I was tempted to come up with excuses, but I'm not that clever, and it would have made a bad illustration for the sermon purpose, so I decided I would just throw it out there and be open about it. I can't play it off as something minor. I can't really make excuses. I'm going to try to buy them off with ice cream later, but... <laughs> What I really need is mercy from them. And the thing is, I'm comfortable sharing this one from the pulpit because that's really not my biggest sin this week, if I'm honest. That one's okay to share from the pulpit, right? We need mercy because our sin goes well beyond just forgetfulness. We need mercy because God has the power and the right to punish us whenever he wants, and we know exactly why. And yet... Beloved, he does not. And that's what's so great for those of us who are in Christ. Jesus, the most blessed man, was also the most merciful man who ever lived. And I mean that in every way. I mean, he, he was doing healings. He never punished anyone. He, he would even have changed light bulbs if it were you know, applicable in the time. His entire earthly ministry was mercy ministry. But at that critical moment on Calvary, the most merciful man who ever lived received none he cried out to his father he went to the mercy seat and instead found judgment and the father saw Jesus on the cross and turned his back and showed him no mercy the most merciful man who ever lived in that moment received nothing and he did it so that his father could show mercy to you and me You know, the the mercy rule in Little League only goes into effect when the losing team already got beat up, right? The whooping already has happened. Uh, The point of that rule in that case is designed to make the punishment stop and keep it from getting any worse. But God's mercy rule works differently, doesn't it? Jesus got beat up, and you escape the beating entirely. And when you think of it that way, how can we not be merciful? How can we have contempt for people who beg? How can we put people on guilt trips? How can we give the cold shoulder to someone who apologizes? How can we not forgive? Unbelievers can do merciful things, but only we can point to Jesus in the process. It's not about earning mercy, it's about being merciful because we are mercy filled. It's about imitating our creator. It's about giving people a taste of the mercy that you've already received. And I would put it to you, beloved, that the cross has become our new mercy seat. Because judgment and mercy came together there, and one day when Jesus will judge the nations, the cross will be a terror to people who are not in Christ, kind of like vampires in the movies. They're going to recoil and run from it. But for those of us who are in Christ, it's the seat of mercy. And if you are not a Christian, you can come to the cross even now. Because if you come now, his default setting is still mercy. He doesn't turn people away. So come to the cross and receive mercy and then go and share it because every chance we have to show mercy is a chance to point people to Jesus. Jesus' mercy rule means spreading the mercy around and receiving even more mercy in eternity. And the mercy there will never be severe. There's plenty of mercy to go around. It never loses power because the blood of Christ never loses power. Mercy multiplies. Mercy pursues us. And one day we will stand before the mercy seat. It's a judgment throne for some, but for us it will be the mercy seat. And we won't have to approach it in fear. What could be better than that? Let's pray. Gracious God and Father, we thank you for this lesson today, Lord. Lord, it doesn't so much challenge our intellect, but boy, does it challenge us in the in the action? Lord, we struggle to be merciful. We struggle to accept mercy. And yet there your cross stands proclaiming mercy, inviting us. Lord, teach us to receive mercy so that we can share mercy and show it to others, Lord. And we pray that as we do so, we would point to the source of all mercy. Lord, to you, to the mercy seat. We pray that our friends and neighbors and family, Lord, that they would come and bow the knee there and receive it so that they too can share it with others. Lord, we ask these things in your name. Amen. Amen. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Please stand and join me in singing the doxology.